Well, let's get into our topic this morning on marriage. Remember, we're looking at milestones this morning. Last week, we looked at the moment of blame. This week, we're looking at when you realize that family can't replace church. Next week, Pastor James is going to take us through the moment you get mercy. And then finally, we're going to conclude with when you realize that closure is overrated. So all of these moments are moments that will take a marriage through to the long haul. Now here's the thing, if you're here this morning and you're saying, well, I'm not married, none of this applies to me, you're wrong, you're really wrong. This is all applicable to anyone, no matter where you are in your walk Uh, because I am deriving these things from theological principles, and theological principles are always transferable for every person. So, let's think about Jesus for a moment. Now, if you were sitting in the crowd the day that Jesus said what he said, you might have started really questioning, questioning whether or not he deserved another second of your time. I mean, everyone was scandalized. Everyone was like, I can't believe he just did that and said that. We're in the Gospel of Mark right now. Jesus is packed. He is surrounded by a crowd. Have you ever been in a sea of humanity? Of course you have. You were just in a sea of humanity on July 4th, right? Whether you went to one of the little fairs or you went out to see the fireworks We went to Shawnee to see the fireworks, and it was just like being stuffed in a can like sardines out there. Well, Jesus is in this kind of group, and his disciples are in the center of the crowd. They're listening to him. They're hanging on to every word that he has to say. Now, on the fringe of the crowd is Mary, Jesus' mother, and his brothers, And they want to get Jesus' attention. They want to present something to him. So what do they do? They pass a message from one person, and it goes to the next person, on down through the crowd, all the way until it arrives at Jesus. Now, everyone knew what Jesus would do with this, right? I mean, he's a good Jewish son. And when your mom says, son, I need you to come with me and do what I say, a good Jewish boy stops everything in that moment, and they go off with mom. Because this is kind of like a family first kind of culture here. But what Jesus does, instead of following the cultural norms, is he shocks everyone. He asks the question, who are my mother and who are my brothers. And then he looks at his disciples, and the, the Greek there would say that he's actually looking in a searching, gazing sort of way. In the Gospel of Matthew, he points his hand to his disciples, and he says, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. I have to tell you, Jesus is known for, you know, hard sayings. He says some things where you have to do a double take. You have to slow down and be like, what in the world did he mean by that? Here's another hard saying that he said in Matthew chapter 10. He says, do not think that I have come to bring 
peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. So there goes all of our notions of this meek, mild, gentle, passive Jesus. Okay, he was a lot of those things. Here's the idea of meekness in the scriptures. Meekness is power under control. So think of a caged lion. But what happens when you open up the cage? The lion comes out. Jesus is that sort of God. And listen what he says next. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I know this morning you were looking for a heartwarming message about familial bonds and how marriage can just get so intimate and deep, but Jesus just really makes my job hard sometimes, I'm telling you. And I got to tell you, he scandalized this culture in saying those words. Listen to what one author says. The meaning of Jesus' statement would have been especially challenging in his first century audience. Ancient Mediterranean society was a strong group culture. The health and survival of the group took priority over the goals and desires of individual members. Here's the big idea for them. Loyalty to family constituted the most important relational virtue for persons in the New Testament world. Now imagine we're living in this time period and we could somehow sequester Jesus for a moment for an interview. So you have an agent of the press, the Galilean press, coming up to Jesus and asking him, Jesus, your recent tweet has absolutely just blown up the internet. I mean, some people are suggesting that you are no longer fit to be called a rabbi. Did you really mean that family doesn't matter? And I imagine Jesus would have responded, you're taking my words out of context. That's not what I'm saying at all. I love the family. In fact, I love my family. And as you look at the scriptures and you look at God's view of family and how God understands family, you have to understand that God is pro-family. I mean, he's the creator of family after all. Like these concepts that we talk about today, husbands and wives and children, all of these things originated from the divine mind and are intended to be a blessing to you. As you look at the scriptures, for example, we see that family is elevated all over the place. Out of the Ten Commandments, two of the Ten Commandments are about family. Honor your father and mother, right? And don't forsake the marriage bed. That's family. Psalm 127 says this, that it is a blessing. Children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. If you go over into the New Testament, listen to what Paul said to Timothy. He said, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, 
He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So the Bible is very pro-family. But we know how reporters are, don't we? They're not going to let Jesus off just simply by saying, no, I love my family. So this reporter is going to come back and say, well, what did you mean then, Jesus? Everyone's dying to know. I mean, you just embarrassed your mom and your brothers in front of a whole crowd of people. You told people that if they followed you, that they would be in division with their families. What did you mean by this? I imagine Jesus would have said something like this. I'm not saying that my followers should break ties with their family. But I am saying that if they follow me, their family might break ties with them. I'm saying that there is a deeper kind of family than flesh and blood ties. And this family is a spiritual family that is characterized by obedience to my father. Jesus said it himself, whoever does his will is my family. And he says that that family is superior. It's the superior family to human family even, even because it is eternal. That family that he's talking about in Mark 3 is stronger. It's more satisfying. It's more demanding. And he would say that those relationships are the relationships that he prioritizes above everything else. So let that sink in for just a minute. Really let it sink in. Jesus is saying that we must prioritize spiritual family first. Now, that is incredulous today. It's an incredulous statement just as much today as it was back then. We think to ourselves, he can't possibly mean that. I mean, it's one of our biggest cultural values. Family comes first. In fact, that's an unquestioned cultural value for many of us. You hear someone say that, you shake your head, you say that's right, you move on with your day. Well, at the same time, when it comes to the spiritual family, the church, that is more of a subjective concept, meaning I select church, I shop church. I customize church to fit my lifestyle. And Dave Harvey would say this, that that is a Christianity that winks at the scriptures while caressing the culture. It's certainly not the Christianity that Jesus presented to us in Mark chapter 3. And I want to suggest that this is a big cultural problem. How does it manifest itself in our culture today? Well, here is an undeniable example of it. And it's church attendance. Church attendance. Christian families, many of them, physically attend church only once or twice per month, some much less. Now you might be thinking, why in the world is he railing on about church attendance? I thought we were talking about marriage this morning. Well, let me just assure you, there's a link here. There is a link here for your marriage. You see, declining church attendance comes from a deeper problem. And the deeper problem 
is that believers are increasingly prioritizing quality time with family over gathering together with God's people. Now, I intentionally use the word God's people because sometimes when I hear the word church, I think of church as an institution. It's something that I'm kind of separate from. It's a decision-making body that maybe I kind of align myself with. But when you think of it as God's people, you are a part of God's people. And Jesus tells us in the scriptures that we are supposed to be a part of God's people. Now, let me ask the critical question. If I'm not aligning myself with God's people in the way that Jesus tells me to, does that help or hurt my marriage? Does it help or hurt? my family. What do you think? I suggest that any time we confuse our priorities, that it's actually harmful to us. One of the big reasons that we end up confusing priorities is that confused priorities are stemming from subtle idolatries. This is a scriptural concept, a theological concept, Think about what an idol is. An idol is anything that I prioritize above God in my heart. So idolatry then is making lesser things into ultimate things in our heart. And guess what? You can even do that with really, really, really good things like family. Kent Hughes says this, many Christians and non-Christians alike have made the family everything. Every moment of every day, every involvement, every commitment, every engagement is measured and judged by the question, how will this benefit my family? And while this is generally commendable, remember, it's taking good things and making them ultimate things, it can degenerate into a familial narcissism where the four walls of the home become a temple Thus, we commit domestic idolatry. Now, Harvey would call that a high-minded idol. It's high-minded because, again, family's really, really, really good. But then I've elevated it up to ultimate status. Now, the problem with any form of idolatry is anytime I make something into an idol, it ends up destroying me. That's the truth in God's word. Think about it in the household. What happens, for example, if the kids become the idol, if they become the center of the household? Everything's all about them. Well, I've watched that scenario play out quite a few times, and what ends up happening is that couples slowly drift apart because the kids have become the center of the household. How does that happen? Well, they forget that the kids are one day going to leave. So all the activities, all the decisions, everything that's going on in the house, it all centers around them. They stop serving one another's needs, and one day they wake up, the kids have left the house, they look at one another, and they say, I have no relationship with you. I don't know you. It was all about them. There's nothing left. Could that possibly be a reason why so many American couples divorce after the kids leave the house? Or what about prioritizing activities with the kids above being with God's people? 
Now, I grew up in a home that expressed this value, and I am not interested in promoting a legalism to you. So a legalism, of course, is taking something from God's word and then kind of making that a moral value that if you don't do this, you're not going to be saved. I'm not interested in that this morning. But I did grow up in a home that had this sort of value. They said, my parents, we say no to Sunday morning activities that conflict with church. We say no to it. So think about all the activities that were vying for my attention as a boy. Uh, Sleepovers with friends. Sports, like football. I really, really wanted to play football as a kid. Uh, So many activities. Again, they didn't make it into a legalism. There were rare exceptions where they would deviate from that course. But more often than not, it was we say no to family to Sunday morning activities that conflict with church. And you know what it said to me as a kid? It communicated something powerful. It told me that, that God gets the first priority. That every Sunday that I'm going to kind of center my time and, and my thoughts on being together with God's people, being together with God for these activities. Now, Again, I am not making a value judgment here, and I'm certainly not keeping tabs on how often people come to church. If you really think that I can do that, you give me far too much credit. I have the memory of a goldfish. Just ask Katie. I just can't keep up with that kind of stuff. But what I am doing this morning is I'm trying to provide an alternative viewpoint to you. You're living in a culture where no one is going to tell you to prioritize God's family. No one's going to tell you to say things like say no to other activities that conflict with the gathering of the church. In fact, in our culture today, if it comes up to like kids' activities or something like that, they're going to say, think about their future. If you withhold this activity from them, well, then they're not going to develop into the kind of person that they could and should be. So put that priority above God in their world. And I want to suggest that Jesus was encountering the same kind of cultural pressure in Mark 3. You see, those people would tell Jesus, don't prioritize the disciples. Do what your mom says. Leave. Let me ask you a question. What would have happened if Jesus left? What if Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, you know, my mom, she's standing on the outside of this crowd, and I'm sorry, guys, but family first. I mean, she said, I need to leave right now. I need to go with her, and I need to really start listening to what she says because she thinks I've gone mad. And she really did. She thought that Jesus had gone crazy. Just look at Mark 3.21. So what would have happened if Jesus just left? Well, you wouldn't have any Galilean ministry. You wouldn't have any preaching of the kingdom of heaven. 
interacting or coming into the place of earth, you would have Jesus' disciples going back to their trades, and they become fishermen and tax collectors again. And Jesus goes back to carpentry, and everything settles down. And all of these big intentions and big purposes that God had for Jesus' ministries such as the cross and the resurrection, all of that is stifled and stopped right then and there. It turns out that when you get your priorities wrong, when you idolize lesser things, it can actually stall the work of God in your life, and it can even hurt the very people that you suggest that you love see, if Jesus would have stopped, Mary wouldn't have been forgiven of her sins. His brothers wouldn't have been forgiven of their sins. But because he kept going, they became his first followers. Think about how getting our priorities wrong could affect children. I am convinced of this, that Christian formation requires consistency. To develop a Christian worldview, you actually have to week after week keep engaging with the things of the faith. So how can a child develop a Christian worldview if they are infrequently exposed to it? Let's just kind of run down a parallel thought. Your child's in algebra class. They show up a quarter of the time to the class do they know algebra at the end of the semester? <laughs> of course they don't. What is it about algebra? Algebra builds upon itself. So if I miss this concept and this concept and that concept, even if I was here and here, I don't get all of algebra. And then at the end of the semester, I get an F on the test. I'm thinking about kids today who are becoming adults like Gen Zers and millennials, who many of them have rejected the Christian faith, and I want to suggest that they haven't rejected the real Christian faith. They have rejected a caricature of the Christian faith that they learned not from the church, but via YouTube. Because they heard something expressed about Christianity, it resonated, but it wasn't the real thing. They hadn't received the formation to know that that's not accurate. So let me just kind of give you a couple of practical words for just a second. First practical word is this. If you want to get your priorities right first, husbands and wives put one another first. I mean, that should just be a no-brainer in Christian marriage. Go out on dates. When there is conflict in the household, let the kids see that you are a united front. Never tear one another down in front of the kids. And most of all, make Jesus the foundation of the marriage. Second practical word, take your kids to church regularly. In fact, create a value in your home where you say church comes First, as you do that, you are elevating worship and fellowship in their minds. I promise you, I am not trying to prescribe a performance-based Christianity. I am not suggesting to you this morning that if you bring them to church every week, they will get saved and follow Jesus. But what I am saying 
is that the more you demonstrate this to them, that you prioritize church, you're teaching them to prioritize it, and they learn. So why does this all matter so much? Why is it that Jesus is telling us that the spiritual family takes priority? Well, for a moment, I want to say something, and I really want you to think about it, okay? Are you ready for this? You ready? Here it is. The whole idea of family in the way we experience it on earth is only temporary. It's only temporary. There's a day coming when the concept of family as we know it will be replaced. And don't let that make you nervous. Randy Alcorn says this, God usually doesn't replace his original creation, but when he does, he replaces it with something that is far better, never worse. Now let's go back to another episode in the life of Jesus as we develop this concept. Jesus is in an exchange with the Sadducees, and they're asking Jesus this off-the-wall, hypothetical type of question. You know the kind of question. It's the kind of question you ask someone to show that you are smarter than they are. So they set up this weird scenario. There's this woman, and she marries a guy, and that guy dies. And then she marries another guy, and that guy dies. And she keeps doing this all the way through, like, seven husbands, and now you're starting to think she is really, really unlucky, or she just might be a black widow marrying guys and killing them for their money. And so they ask the question. They say, in heaven, whose wife will she be? Now listen to how Jesus responds, and in this response, he is unveiling the, the, a little bit of eternity for us. He says, you are wrong because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. You see, anytime we create dilemmas here on earth that cannot be resolved in heaven, we don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus continues, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, I used to hear that scripture, and it used to make me feel sad, because I love Katie. I love her. I want to be eternally married to Katie, but I trust God too. And here in the scriptures, he's telling us that there's something that is better waiting for us. So in heaven, he's saying there's going to be this glorious marriage between Christ and his bride, and that marriage will satisfy and complete every desire that we've had for marriage on this earth. You want, you want to know why marriage tends to go south today? It goes south because sometimes I feel let down that marriage didn't deliver on something that it was not intended to deliver. It can't fully satisfy you, fully complete you. Joy Lynn, you did a great job in, in setting that up in the video. You see, your marriage was never designed for that. Your wife can't satisfy all of your desires, and your husband is going to let you down, and no one say amen to that. It can't do those things. We feel let down 
because we're wanting it to deliver upon something it can't deliver upon in a fallen world. But marriage can do something profound according to the scriptures. Marriage can point to something greater than itself. Every time I say, when a believer says, I do in this life, they're actually becoming a signpost to this incredible relationship between Christ and the church. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. Listen to what he says. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You see, there's actually a real benefit to a husband and wife as they live in light of this reality. In verse 33, Paul says that when you make your marriage a gospel marriage, that husbands are loving their wives and wives are respecting their husbands. And guess what? That's what you call a healthy, fulfilling marriage. When a husband and a wife are loving one another and respecting one another. But the problem is, is we try to make marriage what it is not. And a marriage that is only about itself ends up consuming itself. A marriage that points to something greater than itself outlasts itself. And what's true of marriage is also true of family. Earthly families are one day going to be swept up into a greater reality, the body of Christ. Now, that's not to say that, that when you get to heaven, your earthly family is going to be like strangers to you. That's not what the Bible's saying at all. Uh, Rob Plummer says this, if our children stand beside us in eternity, and this is what I want for my kids, I want them to stand beside me in eternity, it will not be as much, our, it will not be as our children, but as our blood-redeemed brothers and sisters. So there's a relationship change there, and it's not that I'm losing old family, it's that I gain new family. That's why here, we have two values. The first value is generosity. We want to be known as a generous church that looks outside the walls of our church and cares about God's greater purposes. The second is family. See, when the Bible talks about family, it's not creating a metaphor for you. It's not saying the church is like this. It's saying the church is this. When you follow Christ and you immerse yourself in a body of Christ, you become truly a family together. So there's real hope in this, though. Why? Because some of you live thousands of miles away from your real family. Some of you have lost real family. Some of you are lonely when it comes to the natural family side of things because you really don't have anyone because you have experienced that kind of loss. Some of you, as you think of the concept of family, the only thing that comes to your mind is brokenness and pain in memories that elicit shame or something that you think of that I had to actually flee from. But here's what God's Word's saying, no matter where you are this morning. He's preparing something incredible in eternity Family is going to be what it always should have been on earth. In fact, better than that. 
And right now, if you commit yourself to a local church, if you gather with that church, you get a foretaste of that. It's like going to the ice cream shop and saying, I want some cookies and cream, and they give you that little spoon with the sample. You get that right now. So let's start applying this to marriage, and we're only going to take about five or so minutes to do this because really the concept is bigger than marriage. Now, we've allowed our minds to go to heaven for a few moments, but let's go back to earth. I'm suggesting this. Sporadic church attendance, which really points to a deeper problem, which means I'm not really engaging with that church fully. Sporadic church attendance hurts a marriage. But if that's true, then I also want to suggest that the opposite is true, that if you are faithful to God's family, your marriage will go to the distance. Why? Well, for your marriage to go the distance, first, you can't walk alone. So think about this. Satan wants to destroy your marriage. He hates it. And and one of the ways that he unravels many marriages is he isolates husbands and wives. He wants you separated from one another. He wants you separated from church community. It's a familiar pattern with a predictable ending. You can think of a kind of a hypothetical situation with me. Maybe you've experienced this yourself. But you and your wife, husband and wife, couple, you get in a significant argument. And it's bad, like a bad one. Like you did things that you regret doing. You said things that you regret saying. A couple of days pass. Someone comes knocking on the door. It's shame. And shame says to you, if you were really a Christian, you wouldn't have done that. You wouldn't have said that. You wouldn't have gone to bed and just let this anger fester to where you guys aren't talking to one another for days. And then shame says this. Shame says to you, you have no business going to church this Sunday. Because look at all those people. They wouldn't have did or said that. You know what shame is? Shame's a liar. Shame's a total liar. Satan knows that if I can separate these people from their community, they're weaker. They're like an animal away from the pack. The predator can then come and devour the animal. As you look at the scriptures and you ask the question, why does the church exist? Well, in Acts 2, we learn a lot about that. We learn that the church exists for community and prayer and care and mission and growth. So God actually placed you in the family of God to be loved and to love others and to serve and be served. And one of the greatest blessings of this family is actually protection. And that's why a lackadaisical attitude becomes dangerous. Now think about it a little more practically too. What do we all want from a church family? Well, I want to be known. I want to be remembered. I want life-giving relationship. I hope you realize that all of those things are tethered to proximity and presence. Proximity means nearness. Presence means that I show up consistently. So when I engage with church family casually or at a distance, I can't achieve the things that I really want from church family. That's why the authors of Hebrews says this, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, 
not neglecting to meet together as it is a habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's look at one more implication. For your marriage to go the distance, you need the body, and the body needs you. Now think about what your marriage needs more than anything, and I want to suggest that it needs more than anything, that it's not, the answer to that question is not that he really, really needs to change or she really, really needs to change. No, what your marriage needs more than anything is wife, you need to change and grow to look more like Jesus. Husband, you need to change to grow to look more like Jesus because the closer that you grow to Christ, the deeper you will love and care for and support your spouse. I hope that you understand that about your Christian wife, and I hope that you regularly ask yourself the question, well then, how do I grow to look more like Jesus? That's a very important question. Now, I'm a Westerner, and most likely most of you are Westerners, and when we approach a question like that, we think of private and personal stuff. Like, I have my personal Bible study, and I engage in personal evangelism, and I have my own personal prayer time because I want to have a personal relationship with Jesus. And that, I want to suggest, is only one slice of the total pie. There's more than that. And we learn that from passages like 1 Corinthians 12, very helpful. It's a beautiful passage that envisages the church as a life-giving body that can only function when every part is, knows its part, does its part, and trusts others to do their part as well. So do you want your marriage to grow? Do you want to love your wife better? Do you want to grow out of that sinful tendency that's been harming your relationship with your husband or with your kids? Here's what scripture would say to you. You need the body. You need the body exercising the body's spiritual gifts. We sometimes get tempted and we think to ourselves, oh, oh, you know, they don't need me. I'm not important. Nothing could be further from the truth. Everything that God designed for the church requires that you see that you're vital to it and also that you realize that they are vital for you. Now, I want to just kind of close with a final thought here. It turns out that a lot of us, when we hear a message like this, we go to this place of guilt. I'm not interested in guilt. I'm not interested in guilt in my ministry. I present thought processes. I want you to think biblically about the scriptures. I don't want a single person changing their church attendance habit because Rob said one Sunday is not enough, so I need like three in order to check that box. That is like taking a dead rose bush and just stapling fake flowers to it. It does nothing. No, we want the real deal. We want transformation. And how does transformation occur? Transformation occurs when I believe God's word and I take it seriously. And I come to the realization that if I engage in this body of Christ, 
that I get to engage in all of the benefits of it, like worship and being in grace-filled relationships and going deeper in the word with people and getting in closer relationship, which ultimately causes me to grow and look more like Jesus. That's what I want for you. I don't want a bunch of fake flowers in a church. I want the real deal. And I hope you do too, because that's what the Holy Spirit wants for your life. Let me close us in a word of prayer. I'm going to read this prayer from Richard Foster. And um, this is just a great prayer to reinforce that concept of transformation that I'm talking about. O Lord, my God, form me more fully into your likeness. Use the circumstances and interactions of this day to form your will in me. From the frustrations of this day, form peace. From the joys of this day, form strength. From the struggles of this day, form courage. From the beauties of this day, form love. In the name of Jesus Christ, who is all peace and strength and courage and love. Amen.